Well, the title of my message today is Rationally Confident. Rationally Confident. You ever, you ever met someone with irrational confidence? Like their assessment of reality just did not line up with yours. And you're like, I, I see that you're optimistic and I see that you're, you're madly confident, but I'm not seeing what you're seeing. And I don't know why you're so confident. You ever, you ever find, encounter irrational confidence? If you haven't, you're probably that person. Um, <laughs> A few weeks ago, myself and the whole King's Church staff team, we rented a bus and we went to uh, Bar Harbor for the day. It's just team building. It was a lot of fun uh, spending time on, on a bus together. And uh, we, went the, the, we went to Acadia National Park. And as we drove into Acadia National Park, it's a beautiful place. If you've never been there, go check it out sometime. But we get in there and, and Pastor Don, my dear uncle, uh, he was our tour guide. He'd been there a bunch of times. And so he decided to tell us all of our options. He said, you know, down here, you have one of the nicest beaches in the Northeast. You might want to take that. Uh, you have an option. There's many trails. There's a beautiful nature walk over here. You can walk the coastline over here. And he, then he said, for, for some of you, uh, if you want a really great view, there's a short hike called the Beehive. And uh, if you go up the Beehive, take you about 15 minutes. And when you get up there, it is stunning. And, and someone asked on the bus, is, is it hard? And he goes, no, no, it's just a short hike. And he goes, honestly, in all my years, I've never seen anybody have any trouble with it. And nobody's been scared except for one, one loser I ever met. And he's on this bus and his name's Ron Sherwood. And, and so we all start groaning on Ron. Ron's our, Ron's our facilities manager. Like, oh, Ron, you wimp. And so we decide, about 20 of us decide, we're going to go up the beehive because Don said it's amazing. It'll take you about 15 minutes. And we start our ascent. <laughs> and I'm telling you, like 15 minutes in, we're hardly even halfway up. And then we see this high cliff with Sherpas going up and down. <laughs> People with oxygen tanks and those picks, you know, they're doing this number. And we're seeing these people, we're like, that can't be what Don was talking about. Sure enough, it was. And we, we all, like, we made it. Everyone made it. It was close, though. It was, cutting, it was cutting it close for a couple of our people. I won't name names. But we got up. We got back down the mountain, though. And the, the unanimous thing was, what was Don smoking <laughs> to let us know that, to tell us such bad information? Why was he so confident that we could do what took us an hour and 15 minutes? You ever met somebody with irrational confidence, irrational confidence? Maybe you had a friend who, who uh, just like they went on this business venture and you saw it coming. You're like, they're confident in this product. I see through it. Or maybe you had a, I, you know, someone in high school. I remember I had a, a friend in high school. We called him the ladies man because he was irrationally confident in his own ability to pick up chicks. And we love to watch reality strike. It was amazing. But rational confidence. Any Leafs fans in the house? No? Oh, it's so easy. It's so easy. Man, it's just easy targets. Irrational confidence. Last week, we, we put down a big goal. And we, we talked, those of you who weren't here, I want to encourage you to go back because uh, we, what we launched last week was really important. We realized that we were at the end of a seven-year cycle, that seven years had passed since 2012 when our church went through a, a major shift where we cried out to God and God did a brand new work in us. And it has been an incredible ride ever since. We continue to grow. Our church expands to multiple locations. And more than that, there's individual people whose lives are being transformed. We've seen that over seven years, but we realized something. 
that what got us through those seven years was the glory of God that came when we humbled ourselves and we called out to God and we said, God, do a fresh work in us. And he did, didn't he? Didn't he? That wasn't rhetorical. He really did. But we realized something, though. If we're going to go higher up the mountain, doing the same thing that we're doing a little bit more and a little bit harder is just not going to do it. And so we realized we now need to enter into a season. That's why we're calling September just a season. We're focused and fixated on this idea of revival. We need to enter into a season where we call on God again and we pray that same prayer we we did seven years ago in 2 Chronicles 7 where God says, if my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them and I will heal them. And so we said last week, we're going after that again. We're gonna just like, we're gonna keep things rolling, but the heart of our church is on pause and we're saying, God, we don't wanna go any further without your presence. We need you to do a fresh work. And so we're starting to dream about revival. We're starting to dream about God doing a a work of renewal in our own individual hearts as individuals, that God would bring fresh life and fresh glory and fresh power and fresh fire into us as individuals. But it'd be bigger than that. It'd even be corporate, that the church known as King's Church would be would be lit ablaze in fresh fire and fresh glory, that we that like the old glories are no longer glory for us that God would raise the bar and do something new in our day. Are we hungry for that? And we're wanting to see though, beyond just our borders and our walls and our locations, we want God to do a great and mighty work of renewal in the church in the region. That, Pete, that the church would, would rise up and, and just like in 2 Chronicles 7, call out upon God to do something new in our day. And that it would be so profound that it would begin to stretch into the reaches of Atlantic Canada. I even was praying this morning, even as with the devastation of Hurricane Dorian, I asked, I said, Lord, would there be a crack in the armor of our confidence in ourselves in our region? And would this remind us that we are, we are people created and you are God above everything. And I pray, God, that this would just be the beginning of a mass return of people to faith in God. And so we're dreaming about revival. We have this big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG, in the words of Jim Collins. We're looking for it, and I'm dreaming about it. I've been studying about it. Do you know, like, when revival strikes a region, like, there are real benefits. It's not just that people love Jesus more and they love God more. There's incredible things that happen. I was studying uh, in 1904 in Wales. There was a great revival that swept. Hundreds of thousands of people turned back to God in that window of time. It's incredible history. Go check it out. But in it, you can actually read historical facts about their crime rate absolutely plummeting their economy started booming you know why because people started working for the glory of God not for paycheck to paycheck and so it bolstered the quality of their work and their economy absolutely ballooned marriage actually was healthy divorce rates plummeted sex trafficking plummeted in the region there's even data that says that the the land itself benefits that it actually becomes more fruitful when revival strikes a region Like, can you imagine that for a minute in our region? Like if real revival just swept over Atlantic Canada and hundreds of thousands of people returned to God, can you imagine the benefits for a minute? Like what would happen in the air and the atmosphere and the economy and the mentality of our region? How would that affect things? It's incredible to dream about it, isn't it? Like imagine it. Imagine revival for you. Like what would happen if you, like God touched your heart and and he touched your mind and he touched your body and your life and things that you used to wrestle with and struggle with, chains that you've been dragging for 10, 20, 30 years, he breaks under his power. 
Like how amazing would that be? Old mentalities and old mindsets and old hangups you just can't get over. God just knocks over and breaks through with a fresh word. Can you imagine it for your own life? Like just as we think about it and dream about it. But some of you might be, well, wait a minute though. What gives you this confidence to get up there and get all excited about a fresh move of God. Like, it's great to, to dream about that I'm going to get over that addiction or that my marriage is going to be healed or that I'm going to get over that hang-up. That's great to talk about, but all of the evidence of the last five or ten years is pointing in the opposite direction. Why are you so confident? Or maybe some of you, like me, you look around at the state of the church and the state of the culture and you think, man, everything is trending in the opposite direction in the kingdom of God. I mean, yeah, I read an article just this week on CBC that said in the next decade, they're, they're expecting about 9,000 religious spaces to be closed in the next decade in Canada. Since 1964, or sorry, in, since 1947, 1947, just after World War II, about 69% of people in Canada attended church regularly. We now live in a time where less than 10% of people in Canada attend church on a weekly basis. So, so why would we be optimistic? Why would we have high hopes that God could do a new thing? Is that not irrational confidence? Why can we be confident this morning that God would do something in a culture like you, you and I, we watch TV, we live in this world, we work in this world, we know what things are like. Things have never been more divided, have they? People have never been more stressed or anxious or unhappy or angry or outraged. People have never been more opinionated yet uncertain. Divorce, self-harm, identity confusion, political brokenness, like this stuff is rampant. So why can we, the church this morning, or wherever you're watching, or you at West, why can we get in here and worship and get ourselves in a frenzy and get excited about scaling an, a, a mountain, a high mountain? Is that not irrational confidence? And I want to give you three reasons today why I believe we are rationally confident to get excited and get our hopes sky high about God doing a new work in our region and in us. I want to give you three reasons for that. And to do that, we're going to open our Bibles. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I want to preach from the Bible, even though I have feelings about it. It's better to preach from the Bible. How many of you know that facts don't care about your feelings? That's a word for today. 1 Kings 18. This is a, a classic story. And I've preached from it before. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And it's a picture of what it looks like when a nation returns back to God and the events preceding it. Just to catch you up before I read it, uh, I want to let you know that the, the, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel had fallen away. Their faith was now completely gone. It went from marginal to non-existent. They turned, the whole nation, their king and their whole nation had turned to begin to worship false gods, primarily a god named Baal. The worship of the one true God was basically gone and there were very few people. There's just a remnant left. We'll talk about remnants next week. But there was just a small remnant left and we find they're in a three-year drought. Three-year drought that had turned into an outright famine. And Elijah, the man of God, the man of the hour, God moves him forward and he confronts 
King Ahab and all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and basically lays down the gauntlet and said, this is a Kairos moment. It's a window in time where God wants to show himself faithful. And so here's the deal. You call on your God, I'll call on my God and whosoever God shows up, that's the real God. Deal? And the prophets of Baal said, yeah, let's do it. Ahab said, yeah, let's do it. So they go up this mountain called Mount Carmel and Elijah lets them go first. And he says, okay, you guys go ahead and call on your God. Let's see what Baal can do. And let's read what happens. And we're gonna, we're gonna pull some insights on, on why we're gonna be confident this morning that God's gonna do it again here. So this is what preceded a great revival in Israel. Let's look at it. Are you with me? Yeah. All right, Wes, you with me? Good. So they prepared one of the bulls. This is the, the, the prophets of Baal. It's their turn. They prepared one of the bulls and they placed it on the altar. And then they called, the, they called on the name of Baal from, nor, from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. I love Elijah, just swagger. Look at the swagger. Hey, I, you have to shout louder. I don't, I don't think Baal can hear you. He's got his beats on. I don't know. He's not, he's not paying attention today. He's listening to Rihanna or something. I don't know what, what, what Baal's got going on. Yeah, shout louder, he scoffed. For surely Baal is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or maybe he's relieving himself. That is exactly what you think it means. Maybe Baal's in the bathroom with the Telegraph Journal wide open reading the classifieds. Why, I don't know what Baal's up to. He's not paying attention to you. Or the trash talk just continues. Maybe he's away on a trip. He took a vacation from being your God. He went to New River Beach or wherever you go. <laughs> so they shouted all the louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until blood gushed out. These guys, were they committed? Yep. They raved all afternoon, all morning and all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here, enough of that. We're done, we're done, it's enough. I love that, it's over. They all crowded around him and as he repaired, repaired, repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down, he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar. If, you, if you're taking notes or, or you have a Bible open, highlight that. Rebuild the altar, repair the altar. And then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons, and he piled wood on the altar, and he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid the pieces on the wood. And then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering of the wood and the wood. And they, after they'd done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. And they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Now let's just pause there because I, I don't want to go any further before we miss something important for us. One of the main reasons we can have confidence that we know God is going to move is because he's shown us how. We actually know and we're confident today because we know the system. We know the system. If you're taking notes, write this down. We can be confident because we know the system. God is a God of patterns. He's a God of promises. He's a God who does what, you, what he says he's going to do. And if he says do something and then I'll do something, that means he'll do something. He gives us the ways in which we need to seek him. 
Now, I know what some of you are saying. Hey, I was here last week. Didn't you tell us that systems are bad? Didn't you get up and do this whole thing about how a system falls apart and, and machines begin to, to draw power instead of give power and machines start to corrupt? Didn't you say that systems are bad? No, I never said systems are bad. I said worshiping a system instead of the someone is bad. I said getting the cart before the horse is bad. I said operating as a church like a machine instead of realizing that the machine needs the oil and it needs the fire. And so we needed to get first things first, but you gotta understand something about God. God actually gives us the patterns and principles in which he will move. It actually isn't a mystery. When God comes, that's a mystery. That he comes and how he comes, he actually tells us what to do. Notice in 2 Chronicles 7, what's he say? He says, if my people, if my people, here's the offer, if, if you're called by my name, will what? Say it out loud. Humble themselves and, and, and then I will hear from heaven. Do you see that? He said, if you do these things, then I will come, I will hear you, and I will heal you. See, revival happens when we seek God. And seeking is twofold. Seeking has desire, correct? Like you gotta want to do it. But seeking also has doing, doesn't it? There's actual action required, isn't there, in seeking? Like we said in our prayer, in our prayer series, you haven't seeked until you sought, right? There's a doing. You have to do something. There's actual doing required in the seeking. And when we think about God doing a new work, we've got to realize something, that he comes when you seek him. The fire of God always falls on the forms of our faith. The fire of God always falls on the forms of our faith. That you and I actually set the space for the fire of God to fall. That we actually set the very groundwork for God to inhabit. That's what we do. If you notice what Elijah did, did you, did you catch it? It said he did a few things. He actually prepared the space where God came. What did he do? It says that he rebuilt the old altars that they'd torn down. What's an altar? An altar is a place of consecration, isn't it? It's a space of designation. It's a place where we cleared out and we, we took what was desecrated. What's that mean? It means secularized, made normal. And we made it sacred again. It means dedicated to God. This is what Elijah did. He said, it says that the people had torn down the old altars, those spaces where God used to show up. No longer are they available to God. And so what did he do? He rebuilt the old altars. I think this is crucial. You've got to realize something. God needs a space in which to dwell. And a lot of us never experience God because there's no room in our lives. We've never made the space. Elijah actually had to prepare a place. This is this idea of consecration, this idea of obedience, this idea of building old altars. What's, what's it mean? It means to raise a standard and to set apart a place to say, God, I'm leaving this open for you. This is your space. This belongs to you. And I'm going to move everything away from it. And I'm going to set you apart and set this apart. That's what, an, that's what an altar is. An altar is a space that is set apart before God. And it's so important to notice that before the fire came, Elijah had to rebuild the old altars. The, the, the word old in there struck me. Because I'm all for new. I'm all for new things. I'm all for new things and all for experiencing the innovation and technology and all the stuff. And we use technology in our church and all the things. But there are some things that are old things that are always things. 
And I wonder maybe if our grandparents weren't so crazy in some of the altars they had. I wonder if it wasn't so nuts to say, I don't care, kid, if you got gangrene, get your dang church clothes on, we're going to church. Right? Like, were they crazy? Maybe not. Maybe it's time for the church to start repairing old altars and start raising some standards and saying, you know what, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm not just gonna let anybody influence my kids' minds. That mind is an altar to the most high God and I'm gonna influence it and I'm gonna prepare a place. Maybe we start looking at our calendars and saying, okay, where's God going to gonna show up? God, you get this day and you get the first of every morning. Maybe that's not a crazy approach. Maybe if we started making some space, we'd start to see God occupy it. See, God always moves in the space we prepare. The fire of God always falls in a form. Think about like when Jesus was baptized. The Bible says he came up out of the water. The skies opened up and the the Holy Spirit descended in the form like a dove. It was a form. You think about uh, Pentecost, the, the, the first church. There they are in the upper room. It says a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Anybody heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind recently? <laughs> Came in and said the spirit descended upon them like tongues of fire, form. There's always a form to how God moves. And there's two major errors we often make. Some, some people, some churches, they're all work and no pray. They're all work and no pray. Or maybe some Christians, not just churches. You think, ah, it's all on me. I'm going to do all the stuff. No, we talked about that last week. You're, you're dead. You're a robot. But there's also an error that's all pray and no work. You think that as long as I stay inside and I pray and I pray and I pray and I cry out to God, notice the difference between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal kept just ramping up their prayers. At a certain point, prayer intensity is not going to change anything. The question is, is there a space for the one true God to operate in? We've got to rebuild the old altars. That struck me hard this week. I was reminded of something my mentor, Kevin Meyer, said to me one time when he was telling me about how he was praying to God. He said, God, I want more of you. I want to experience more of you in this season. And he said, the Lord said to me, if you want more of me, you've got to be more like me. And that's not a threat. It's an invitation to make space to say, God, you get this space in my life, you get this time, you get this money, you get this, you get this mind, you get everything. To the degree that you make space is the degree that you experience the presence. He rebuilt the old altars. He rebuilt the old altars. He also, I think it's important, I don't have time to really break it down today, but it's important to notice that he, he, he did this thing with these jars. Did you notice that? He had, he had four jars and they dumped water on it three times. And that's a picture of, of the authority of the kingdom and 12 tribes and the governance of God. There's all kinds of cool stuff in there. We don't have time to break down today, but it's important to note something. Did you notice the, the faith involved in this? He had great faith. Fire always falls in the form of our faith. And then one other thing that stuck out to me is that says that he arranged the wood and he cut the bull and poured water on it. And that's a picture of sacrifice. Can you imagine how scarce wood and bulls are at the end of a three-year famine? That might have been the last bull. There might have been no more bulls after that. This was crazy faith. 
This was real faith and it was real sacrifice that Elijah did. And it was upon that, it's upon that move that the fire of God fell. So what am I trying to say? I'm saying this, here's why I'm confident today that God is gonna move in my life because I'm making more space. I'm saying, God, I'm giving you more time. I'm giving you more focus. I'm carving out things and they aren't even bad things. They're just things that are getting in the way of him. So I'm doing less of that and more of you. I'm thinking less that way and I'm thinking more about you. I'm, I'm sleeping in a little less and I'm getting up for you a little bit more. That's why I'm confident that God's gonna move because he said, if you'll seek me, you'll find me. It's a promise. It's action reaction. He'll do it. And that's why I'm confident he's gonna do it in our church. And he's going to do it in the region because our church, as for us, we are going to seek the Lord in this season. Amen? We're going to carve out some space and just say, God, you can have it all. It's all great, but it's all nothing unless you're in it. So God, change what you want to change. Break what you want to break. Build what you want to build. Do what you want to do. Call us where you want to call us. Do what you want. We want you. We want to see God doing new work. I'm confident because we know the system, but let's keep moving. More than my ability and our ability to arrange ourselves according to his promise, I'm confident today, not just because of the system. Let's, let's look a little further here. Let's look at what happened next. Are you still with me? Verse 36. I'm excited. I hope, I hope your confidence is rising. Verse 36 says this. At the usual time for offering and the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar. So they prepared the altar, correct? And then Elijah walks up and he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. This was your idea. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately. Just making sure you're paying attention. Immediately. The fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It was even licked, it was even licked up all the water in the trench. Isn't that amazing? Just consumed everything. That's how God rolls. Look at this. And when all the people saw it, do this to us in our day, Lord. When all the people saw it, when they saw the glory of God and the fire of God fall, look what it says. They fell face down on the ground. They cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord, he is God. What a picture. Just people returning, saying, oh God, we've been duped. There is no God but you. See, I'm confident this morning that God is gonna do a fresh and powerful work in our day, not only because we know the system, but more importantly, because we know the someone. We know who he is. And at the end of the day, my hope is not built on a pattern or a principle. It's not built on a project or a process. It's built on a person and his name is Jesus. That's pretty good preaching, Pastor Brent. I'm, I'm just saying, <laughs> people acting like... Our hope is not built on a pattern or a project or a principle or even a promise. It's built on the one who made the promise. It's built on the person of Jesus. Our hope, our confidence lies in who he is. Did you notice what Elijah did? Elijah gets up and did you notice his prayer? It wasn't, oh God, you have seen my great commitment to you. You have seen me do all the great things that all these losers didn't do. 
He didn't pray that. He didn't say, oh God, and I've cut up this bull and prepared it so nicely. I have great steaks simmering for you. And I even salted it like Salt Bay. I'm all set here and it's looking great for you, Lord. Salt Bay, anybody you know that guy? Google it, Google it. This guy, it's amazing. I see a meme coming. What was his prayer? His prayer was, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's he doing? He's calling on who he knows God to be. Oh Lord, God of your promise, covenant keeper, promise keeper, the one who promised to Abraham that his, his inheritance, his, his whole lineage would take this whole earth one day. The one that promised to Jacob and Isaac and Jacob, the one who was and is and is to come. God of your promise. He calls on God on who he is. As it got closer to the actual act of God and the move of God, it wasn't, it wasn't what he did primarily. It was who God is. Elijah draws confidence on who God is. You need to understand something. This for us as a church and this for your, you as your life, as you, as you seek to follow God, there is a correlation between our confidence in him and his power in us. You need to mark that down and remember that. There is a correlation between our confidence in him and his power at work in us. This is what it means in Hebrews 12 where, where he's telling the Christians, hey, this is how you're going to live and win the Christian life. This is how you're going to win the race. So you're going to throw off all the hinders and tangles and all the sin and all the snares. Throw that off. That's preparing a place. And then what's it say? It says, then run the race with perseverance. And it says, and here's how you're going to do that. We do that by working really, really, really hard. No, the scripture says we do that by fixing our eyes on, oh, say his name. Yeah, we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who does it. It's about him. So when we get confident today, our confidence isn't just built that we've arranged ourselves just so. Our confidence rests even more in the fact that he is a God of his word. And that when we do our part and we seek him, he will do his part. He is a God of his promise. Elijah called upon God's character. He said, I know who you are. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God who never, ever forsakes his word. You aren't a man that you can lie. Your word accomplishes that for which it's set out for. It never returns void. Faithful is the one who calls us and he will do it. He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it on to completion. He gets confident in who he is. How confident are you in who God is? Are you rattled this morning? Build your confidence in who God is. He is true to his word. You need to learn how to, how, to, how to preach to yourself. God knows. You need to remind yourself, remind the powers. We need to, as a church, I pray that this is a season where we remind the powers and principalities that we have not lost our confidence in God. And yet we see churches closing and we see families breaking and we see addictions rampant, but we know who our God is. And the, the God is a way maker and he is somebody that even when it looks like it's the 11th hour and it looks like there's no hope, we know there is a moment coming when God will be faithful to his word. And as long as there is a church that stands up and says, I trust in my God, he will move. Confident in who he is. Confident in what he's done. I like, that he, I like that he reminds like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's history, you know? 
Sometimes you need to like consult your history to remind yourself in your present. Like that's what David did, right? God, I, I know you delivered me from the claw of the bear and the paw of the lion or whatever, claws and paws. And now you're gonna deliver me from the hand of the Philistine, the Goliath. Like some of you need to learn how to preach to yourself. Preach to yourself on the history of who God is. Remind yourself, you're waiting on an impossible promise. You're not the only person that's waited on an impossible promise. It's all through the scripture. Remind yourself, God, I know you're a promise keeper. We need to learn how to preach to ourselves, build our confidence in who he is. Look, we have a huge reason to be confident that God's gonna do something new in our day. His name is Jesus. He's already done the most important thing on the cross and rose from the dead. This is why Paul says, how much, how much more could God do? He's not withholding anything from you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We're confident in him. We're confident in him. You confident today? Elbow the, person, elbow the person next to you and say, hey, be confident. He's got this. That was not a confident. Be confident. <laughs> All right, one more thought. So we're confident because we know the system. We're confident because we know the someone, which is, which is really where we're hanging most, of, most all of our hope. It's on him. But I want to look at how this, this cool little story ends. So the fire falls. So picture it, right? You're there. The nation turns back to God. But they're still in a drought. So God's people come. And that's a picture of a remnant. Again, we'll talk about that later. But God's people return, but they're still in a drought. And now look what happens next. We're going to see the move of God hit the region. Watch. It says in verse 41, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go get something to eat and drink. For I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Anybody hear a mighty rainstorm recently? <laughs> I was kind of hoping to get to preach this on Saturday night while it was happening. I hear the sound of rushing. <laughs> so Ahab went to eat and drink. Now, is that wise to eat and drink in a famine? No, not unless, not unless the famine's about to break. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. And then he said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked and then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't, I didn't see anything, man. I don't know why you're so confident. I don't know why you want me to go look at the sea. I know that's generally where cloud systems form and stuff, but I think you're getting a little too excited. You need to like just maybe lower your expectations, Elijah, because I don't see anything. And it says this, seven times, Elijah told him to go back. No, go look again. I, I feel it. I feel something shift. I can feel it in the air. Like I can feel the pressure system. The pressure just changed. I know it's happening. I know it's happening. Now, no one else can see it, but Elijah can. Now, finally, the seventh time, his servant told him, okay, good news. Um, I saw a little cloud. Now, let's not get too excited. It's a small cloud, like so, like literally the size of a man's hand. So I'm, I'm it's not going to be the system that's going to really bring the rain that's going to do the thing. It's, 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 it's really just a small thing. So let's not get too excited. It, it was just a little cloud. I saw a little cloud the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. And then Elijah shouted, Woo! <laughs> Hurry! Go get Ahab! 
tell him to get moving. Climb into his chariot and go back home because if he doesn't hurry, it's going to happen so soon, the rain is going to stop you. You're not going to be able to even get home. You're going to be stuck on Mount Carmel. So get in your Ferrari and get moving. You need to get back and get to safety because the storm, the rain is coming. And then look at this, verse 45. And as soon and soon and soon the sky was black with clouds and a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm. Anybody see a terrific rainstorm recently? <laughs> and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. And then there's this fun fact. And the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak in his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Fun fact. <laughs> I love that. Like anybody see the Marvel movies where like Captain America's running faster than cars? It, this, is, this is where it really happened, except this guy was in a dress. So it's a, it's a good picture. All right, here's, here, here's the last reason why we're confident. Here it is. I'm not just confident because I know the system, that if we arrange ourselves in a certain way, and I'm not just confident because I know the someone, that he will come through and he will do what he says. We've seen it before. He'll do it again. Amen? I am confident because I know the seasons. I know the seasons. If you're taking notes, write this down. We're confident because we know the seasons. I, I see the signs. Elijah saw the signs. And it opened up his eyes. He saw the signs. <laughs> where's, all my, where's all my 90s friends? <laughs> they got me, got me humming that all day. I saw the sign. You're welcome. He saw the sign. He saw it. He, he saw it before anybody else saw it. Everybody else was seeing drought. Elijah is like, no, something shifted. Something shifted. Something has changed. I can feel it in the air. I can feel, I can feel moisture rising in the air. I can see the shift. I can see the change. Listen, we as Christians need to be the ones that don't see the drought. We need to see through the drought and we need to know the seasons and we need to realize that if there's been no rain, there's a time when the rain is going to come. That if the tide has gone out, there's a time that the tide is going to come back in. And we, if we're not careful, and I, I know I've fallen victim to this, and I, I suspect you have too. If we're not careful, we can just buy drought thinking. And we can just start looking at the drought and start, frankly, believing some of the, the ideology of our day. Like that kind of, that progressive secular ideology that basically says, you know what? There is no God, your God, and frankly, religion is the problem. It's this oppressive, regressive thing, but if we could just leave that behind in the past and we could work together and you do you and I'll do me and it's all love and we're gonna make utopia, it gets really easy to start hearing that and thinking, well, maybe they're right. But we, the church, need to be the people that actually see the writings on the wall. We need to be the ones that see the, the, the cloud rising from the east. We need to be the ones that see, that see that the things are shifting. Have you noticed lately that like some of that secular ideology is absolutely starting to crack and implode? Have you seen that? I see, I see, I see a cloud rising. Have you seen like the contradictions of some of that ethos and ideology are starting to become more prevalent in people? They're starting to see it. They're starting to say, hey, you know what? At a certain point, we can't all do you because sometimes you being you is gonna step on me and I don't like that. 
Or, you know what, that's great. If you want to be a girl, but just, just you, can't, you can't win in girls' MMA. That's just not going to be how it's going. Like, all of these things in our culture, we're starting to see pressure cracks. You're seeing it. You're seeing it in politics. Listen, the answer is not in the left or the right. They're both busted and messed. We're starting to see it. It's tearing. It's fracturing. I see, I see, I see a cloud forming. Are you seeing it? We need to be the people that learn how to see through the drought and start seeing the small clouds that are coming and we realize we get excited. We get hopeful. Every time I see just the contradictions and the hypocrisy and the frustration rising in the culture, you know what that tells me? It tells me there's a cloud rising. It tells me the tide's going out. It tells me we're getting to the end. It tells me people are getting fed up with this crap. And they're gonna turn and they're gonna look and say, the Lord, he is God. We aren't God. You see, you see, the ideology right now that permeates our culture is they want the kingdom without the king. But people are waking up to the fact that you can't have both and that the Lord, he is God. And when he is in his rightful place, things start to fall in order. And so I look at the world and it's easy. It's easy to see the drought. But if we, if we start looking through a little bit more and we see the political tennis match that's happening and we see all the fractures in our cultures and all the inconsistencies and all the stuff that's starting to snap and creak and, creak and bust and break, that should make us, the church, excited. That means the rain's coming. And if you know anything about the history of revival, revival always, always follows cultural crisis. Always. Here's something that can make you maybe a little more excited. This is not new. I was reading about the Great Awakening this week, and the Great Awakening was this incredible movement that happened in the 1700s. A guy named John Wesley, and then a guy named George Whitfield, and a guy named Jonathan Edwards. In the whole Western world, like this massive renewal swept over England and Great Britain and through America, and it's just one of the craziest moves of God that has ever happened. And they're describing the cultural climate beforehand, and they were saying things that if you read it, you'd think they're talking about today. You know, the church was marginally committed People had left their faith. The kids were not picking up the faith of their parents at all. And in fact, there was even some statements about kids that were failing to launch, like they were, they were staying at home until they were in their 30s. <laughs> Take hope, parents. They weren't getting married. And in fact, and more seriously, there was like self-harm and depression on the rise, even though they didn't really call it the same way we call it. it was, there was self-harm and suicide was on the rise, despair and hopelessness. And it was on the backdrop of that cultural crisis that the wave of the kingdom of God rushed in. See, I look around and I mean, if you see the drought, you can get discouraged. But if you start to see the fact that there are clouds forming over this region, I, oh man, that gets me excited. That gets me excited. What do you see today? What do you, look, look to the parent right now who's like, parent, you're praying for your child who seems like they've gone so far away. You know what? Pray them into a wall. Pray them into that moment where the, where the clouds form over them and they have that realization as they eat the pig slop. What am I doing? What am I doing? And they return. What do you see? Do you see the drought or do you see the opportunity for the kingdom to rush in? I see an opportunity. I'm excited. I'm excited for our region because I've never in my lifetime seen, seen more lethargy in the church. I've never seen more people checked out than I have before. I've never seen more dysfunction in our region or despair or depression or cynicism. Sounds like a great time for a move of God, doesn't it? Look at this. I want to read a quote to you. 
This is by a guy named Mark Sayers, and he's a revivalist, and he's a sociologist. He's brilliant. And he says this. He says, to human eyes, the tide seems to have retreated. But out beyond the breakers, the power is growing, churning in hiddenness, preparing to return with force. The secular progressive creed is looking weaker than it initially appeared. The gaps between its promises and reality are widening. Its contradictions are being revealed in increasingly plain sight. Are you seeing that? Causing significant cultural upheaval and change, rising inequality between rich and poor, distance between elites and everyday people, the growth of loneliness and social disconnection despite our hyperconnection. Everybody's connected. You have a thousand Facebook friends and no friends. A burgeoning crisis of meaning despite our affluence. The increase in social fracture and conflict. The disruptive effect of technology upon our environment, our health and social sphere. The growing threat of full-scale war and nuclear conflict in our multipolar world. Christ in the crisis. Before us is a unique moment of opportunity. God's presence is at work behind much of our cultural chaos. Our culture seeks a secularized version of renewal, attempting to live without God's presence. What's he saying? He's saying that behind the scenes right now, God is preparing a move. And we of all people should know what happens when the tide goes out. Shouldn't we? Maybe I I had the Lord say a few years ago to me that, that reversing falls is a prophetic picture of what I'm gonna do in this region. That there are old rivers flowing, old rivers flowing that when my tide comes in, doesn't matter how much, how much energy is in that river, I'm pushing it back. See, when, when the tide goes out, it comes back in. Or maybe I'll say it like this. When the breath goes out, it comes back in. Let's, let's do this. Everybody exhale. West Campus, if you're in your kitchen or wherever you are, let's all exhale. Exhale and hold your breath. One, two, three, go. Whew. Hold it. Hold it. Just hold it for a minute. Just hold it. Just keep holding it for a second. All right, I don't want anybody to fall over. Let's let's breathe. Here's a fact. You can't keep the breath out. You can't keep the breath out. You can't keep the breath out. At some point, the church has got to inhale. At some point, this region's going to inhale. At some point, you cannot keep the breath out. And the further the tide rolls back, the bigger it rolls in. I'm excited today. You know why? Because we are setting the stage and we are going to be a remnant that rises up in this region. And we say, God, we are positioning ourselves for the greatest move of our lifetime. And we are getting ready to see you wash over this region. You know what? Hurricane Dorian is going to be nothing compared to the move of your spirit and the wind of your spirit when we see you start to move. And we are setting the steady the stage. We are setting the stage. You say, God, start right here. Start in us. But God, we believe we hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Listen, here's something you need to know. It's not a question of if revival is going to happen. It's already happening all over the world. There is revival happening right now in China. There is revival happening right now in parts of Africa. There is revival happening right now in South America. It's not a question of if. It's a question of if here. And if the church will rise up and seek him, it can happen here. If he's doing it there, he can do it here. Amen? If he did it for that family, he can do it for my family. If he did it for that kid, he can do it for my kid. If he did it for that region, he can do it for this region. If he did it then, he can do it again. Amen? So we're excited today. 
I have sky-high confidence that right now, like, like, like the prayer of Habakkuk, where he says, Lord, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I've heard of it. I know who you are. You're a God of renewal, of restoration. You're a God who breaks chains and knocks down walls and moves back the enemy. I know who you are. And I've heard of your fame and I've heard of your good deeds. Now do it here. Do it again. Do it again here. In our day. In our day. Do it here and remember mercy as you do it. You believe him for that today? You're excited, Father, thank you today. We have great confidence this morning to know that when we seek you, we find you. And so, Father, in our best efforts, Lord, we are clearing out space right now in our lives. Father, I pray for wisdom right now in our church to begin to rebuild old altars. And I don't even care if it is old-fashioned. Maybe we need a good old-fashioned Bible study. And maybe we need a good old-fashioned prayer meeting. Maybe we need good old-fashioned devotions. God, would you help us rebuild the old altars this morning and this week and this season, this month of September. God, will we prepare a new place for you to dwell and occupy? Will we bring a sacrifice? Would it cost us something? Will we not be surprised by it? Would our faith be tangible today? And would our confidence rise in the fact that if we do what you say we need to do, you'll do what you say you'll do. And so God, our confidence is fixed on you, not a system, but a someone. We trust you this morning that you're going to move in King's Church. We trust you that you're going to move in St. John and you're going to move in Halifax not because of what we do, but because of who you are. And so, Father, we set ourselves ready and we hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind that is going to run over this region like never before. Would you do it again here, Lord, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Do it again. Come on. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the message today. If you want to stay up to date, go ahead and click subscribe to follow us on YouTube. And hey, if you want to partner with us in getting these messages farther, you can go to our website and find out ways that you can give and help us get the good news of Jesus further than ever before.